Well, Bethlehem, we've been singing about that little town already this morning, haven't we? I was there just two weeks ago, and uh, just a, it was kind of odd and surreal to stand there less than a month before Christmas, but it was not at all what I'd expected. Highly commercialized, driven by tourism with even little children trying to sell you something. You see here a picture. We were in a shop at the end of our time in Bethlehem. You see here an olive wood nativity. That thing is as big or bigger than the, the whole communion table here. Um, they had nativity sets. Uh, you can have almost life-size, you know, figurines like this tall off the table. You can have a whole set that size for about $70,000 U.S. dollars. So uh, very commercialized. Uh, and something that just hadn't clicked with me in the past, didn't have a reason to think about it or uh, really look into it a whole lot. Uh, Bethlehem's in the West Bank, in Palestinian-controlled area. Uh, the city of Bethlehem used to be, <clears throat> probably prior to 1995, about 80% Christian. Um, at this point, it's about 20% Christian. Um, and so the Christians there struggle, and there's some, uh, there's some strife. Earlier this week, it was... Also kind of surreal to watch the news and see riots in Manger Square. Here's the Manger Square Hotel as we stood in that same location and looked up at that sign. That's right where we had walked. Um, And to hear of the Christians in Bethlehem this week turning the lights on the Christmas tree there in Manger Square off in order to avoid, um, and, and right near the church, the Nativity also, but all for fear of the riots, etc., that were beginning to break out among the Palestinians. Brian Zahn says of Bethlehem, for Christians, for, for contemporary pilgrims seeking to find a hallmark Christmas card Bethlehem, the modern Palestinian, Palestinian city is a jarring disappointment. The bitter agonies of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are evident the moment you pass through the controversial checkpoint with its looming concrete walls and ominous guard towers. But the sentimental Christmas card Bethlehem never told the whole story anyway. When we read of Bethlehem in the Bible, we find an uncensored story that is all too current. The Bible tells unflinchingly of hope, and horror of beauty and brutality found in Bethlehem in the days of King Herod the Great. By the the way, the only thing great about King Herod was his ability to build and expand his kingdom. He did some amazing building projects, but he wasn't much of a person. Within a year or two of Jesus' birth, this serene, albeit ordinary, and nondescript town of Bethlehem would become the ground where much innocent blood would be shed. Matthew 2, verses 16 to 18, tell us of what's become known as the slaughter of the innocents. And you remember the story. After Jesus was born, after uh, when, when the Magi came to Herod, in his jealousy, he said, find out where this king is to be born. He didn't want any threat to his power or reign. 
And when they received, the Magi received a, a, a dream and, 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 and God basically said, don't go back to Herod, he realized he'd been tricked. There in Matthew 2, the text tells us that he issued an edict saying, every male child under the age of two years in Bethlehem and the surrounding region were not given a, a, an exact uh, distance or you know how, how large of an area we're talking about, but whatever the area was he had in mind, Baby boys, two years and under, were slaughtered by Herod's death squads. How many infants, how many toddlers, we don't know, 15 to 20, 50 to 75, 100 to 150. The question is, does it really matter, right? Because of the insane jealousy and hunger for power, a grown man had babies slaughtered. You see, as Brian Zahn goes on to say, Jesus wasn't born in the beatific beauty of a nativity icon. When we're faithful to the Christmas story as told in the Bible, it's far from sentimental or naive. Bethlehem is where beauty and brutality are found side by side. The Christmas carol is right, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears... Of all the years are met in thee tonight. Jesus was born into a world where before he was two, he was targeted for murder. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and God is with us in the catastrophe of a world threatened by violence. God has not abandoned the world to its bloody fate. God saves humanity, but not by the worn-out way of killing the bad guys. That only recycles the violence. God saves humanity by joining humanity. God becomes one of us in order to heal and save us. I want to talk to you this morning about the mundane majesty of the manger. You're thinking, are you kidding me? A whole sermon about the manger? Absolutely. And we could keep going long past what this message will. In Luke chapter 2, we've already begun the reading of that text. Here's the the, the truth that I want you to take away from this story, this well-known, familiar story. God revealed the glory of His grace by having His Son lay in a Bethlehem feeding trough. Would you stand with me as we read Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 20? We pick it up where Freddie left it off. And while they were there, that is Mary and Joseph, where in Bethlehem, where they had returned to to have their names recorded for the census under Octavian, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth a peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You may be seated. Thank you. The word manger comes from the Latin word for chew or eat. That kind of quickly takes away some of the romanticized images of a manger that come to mind when we hear the word, doesn't it? It's such a, it's such a smooth word, manger. Away in a manger. No room, no, no place for a bed, whatever, however it goes. I've, I've butchered it already. But it's so sweet sounding, isn't it? The word really comes from the the Latin word for chew or eat. It refers to a trough where horses and donkeys and cattle ate. And in the most famous Christmas paragraphs in the Bible, Luke, if you noticed, riveted our attention on the manger three different times. We're talking this morning about the mundane majesty of the manger. I want you to see from these verses the truth that God revealed the glory of His grace by having His Son lay in a Bethlehem feeding trough. Now, maybe you're thinking, how? What do you mean? How did God reveal the glory of his grace by having his son lay in a Bethlehem feeding trough? I want you to notice the following three realities about the Messiah of Israel, about the Savior of the world in a feeding trough. First of all, notice this. The manger shows the loving humility of Jesus. The Son of God laying where the mouths of oxen and donkeys and cows had no doubt recently licked up grain or hay or both. Here's what the manger looked like, most likely. Most likely made of stone, not wood. By the way, everything over there is made out of stone. There is rock everywhere. And and this was found not in Bethlehem. This particular manger was found in another place. Uh, I want to say this was in... um, well, it doesn't matter, Megiddo, I believe, and there were known stables there. And so this is a, this is a, a manger that we were able to see. Kind of gives new meaning to the idea, this whole, this whole truth of the son of the living God laying in a donkey's trough kind of gives new meaning to Philippians chapter 2, does it not? where the humility, the loving humility of Jesus is spoken of, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or, or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being born in the likeness of men. But let me ask you a question about that being born in the likeness of men. Y'all have all seen newborn babies, right? 
Uh, y'all been around, maybe, maybe you've actually witnessed a birth. Maybe some of, you, some, of, some of us have seen the birth of our own children. Here's the question, though. How many, how many folks do you know who, whose first crib was a feeding trough? And I'm talking about even out in the country. It's pretty impressive when that snow comes off the roof, isn't it? Jesus was probably born in a cave, not a barn, because that's where animals were sheltered many times in Palestine in those days. Here's a pic of of a cave in Bethlehem that could have been where Jesus was born. At least the Catholic Church has said that this is the spot. I don't think we know exactly the spot, but it certainly could have been a cave like this. Of course, there wouldn't have been benches uh, this would have been dirty and filled with animals, and, and somewhere in the back, huddled down by a small fire, would have been Mary and Joseph. Can you try to imagine with me what it was really like? Author John Bloom helps us out here, not 10 feet away. Just imagine. Close your eyes and put yourself in, in this spot as I describe it. Not ten feet away, asleep on the ground near a small fire that is burned down to embers, is a peasant girl. She has bits of straw in her long, messy, dark hair, and she's wrapped in dirty cloaks and a blanket. A split-second look tells us how difficult this night has been for her, and she's so young. Even more distressing, we see beside her a small, crude, dirty feeding trough in which lays a sleeping newborn wrapped tightly in unsanitary, blood-smeared claws. It's not exactly what you imagine when you hear swaddling claws, is it? We take a few tentative steps forward. We know this child and we know this girl, but the scene is strange to us. It doesn't look like the manger scenes and and illustrated books of our childhood. Our Advent traditions did not prepare us for the earthy realness of the real Advent. Mary is not serene. She's bone-weary. And no divine heavenly glow emanates from the child. He's not even especially beautiful, according to Isaiah 53, verse 2. In fact, there's nothing about this child to suggest the unfathomable mystery of who he is. We're unnerved to realize that had we not already known, we would have not recognized him at all. This scene, the real Christmas, has nothing of the feeling of the Christmas we know. It has all the feel of undesired, desperate homelessness. More like a scene we'd find under a bridge than under our Christmas tree. That is a humble birth. And one that would have mattered big to the shepherds. This picture could have been the fields, the actual fields where the shepherds were. This is my favorite part about Bethlehem. They build a church everywhere, so they cover up everything and they guess at where the cave is and so forth and so on. But these are still fields where sheep could have actually been. You look at that and you say, that's not very green. No, it's winter there now. And so the fields are all brown. But this, this looks out across Bethlehem. And in the text, the shepherds even say, let us go up to Bethlehem. So they had to go down into the valley and back up the mount, the little mountain there, little hill, to the, to the city of Bethlehem. The Messiah was born and bedded down in the shepherd's world. In our world, 
the world of the outcasts of society, the world of the, the low class, the always nasty, hard-working shepherds. Jesus came to their world. He came to our world. The manger shows the loving humility of Jesus. He humbled himself. He emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and was born in the likeness of men. But not royal men, the lowest of men. He was laid not in a stately crib, a fancy nursery, but a feeding trough. The manger shows the loving humility of Jesus. God revealed the glory of his grace by having his son lay in a Bethlehem feeding trough. Secondly, though, this morning, notice with me, the Bethlehem manger shows the absolute sovereignty of our Savior God. You remember Micah's prophecy that Leslie read at the beginning of the service? Micah chapter 5, verse 2, one of those verses she read, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. What's the prophet's point? What's God's point in that prophecy? I'm going to send Messiah where you would least look for him. I'm going to send him to a shepherd's town. I'm going to send him to an out-of-the-way place. And then the question comes, so how did Jesus' birth end up happening in Bethlehem? His parents lived where? The text tells us in Nazareth. By the way, that's 70 miles to the north. And so if you think about, of a map of Palestine, if you're going north to south, you've got Gal uh, the Galilee up here, the Galilee area by the sea, and that's where Nazareth was. Then you come down and you, and you follow the Jordan River down and, and to the west is Jerusalem. And then another six miles south, southwest, is Bethlehem. How did they get there? Well, God moved the heart of the most powerful man on the planet to call for a census of his empire. And for good Jews like Joseph and Mary, that meant going to their ancestral hometown, which in both of their cases was the city of David's birth and the burial place of Rachel, the little town of Bethlehem. By the way, we believe that this was not so much, this trip was not so much the, 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 the requirement of the Roman Empire as it was the traditional practice of the Jews. They're very serious even to this day about their lineage and about their, their, their ancestral line. And so this is a good occasion just to refresh the records, if you will, in the hometown. Didn't matter to the Romans where you got recorded as long as you got recorded, but it mattered a lot to the nation of Israel to have them recorded in their hometown. Now, if God reigned over the entire world to get Jesus' mother to the right town in time for his birth, and if he used the most powerful man on the planet to do that, don't you think that God could have arranged for a better bed? Right? Couldn't he have done that? Everybody all right? Y'all awake this morning? 
Anybody got any issue with that? I mean, if he can move Caesar to call for a census that he knew would get Mary and Joseph into Bethlehem and thus fulfill this crazy prophecy he'd given some 800 years before through the prophet Micah, why couldn't he have gotten him a room, kept him a vacant hotel room, given him a nice warm place to lay? You see, the humble birth of the Savior was an absolutely sovereign choice and plan of our Savior God to show us just how far he reaches to save. The Bethlehem manger shows the absolute sovereignty of our Savior God. Everything about Jesus' birth was anything but easy. It was very mundane among the animals and the common people, but it was in the exact spot that God planned before the worlds were even made. Isn't that awesome? Everything was right on time. If our God is that in charge of the birth of His Son, we can rest assured that He is now working His perfect plan for our good and His glory, even when it seems that our lives are not where they thought we thought they would be. Can you imagine the trouble, the pain, the, the weariness of that trip from Nazareth up a big mountain to Jerusalem and then back down to the little town of Bethlehem? Do you ever wonder if you're in the right place? Do you ever wonder why you're where you are? No doubt by the time Mary and Joseph got there, though they knew, they'd been told who this baby would be, they had to be wondering, man, are we going to make it? Is this birth going to happen okay? How many of you remember, how many men remember what it's like to be a first-time dad? I mean, let's just face it, by the time you get to the third or fourth, I mean, it's just like old school. You just kind of roll as long as there's no complications. It's just kind of uh, old hat by then, right? Sorry, Karis. But man, with that first one, I mean, you are freaking out. You're nervous as a cat. I mean, you just, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what to expect. You've heard all the stories and, and you're just, just imagine. And you've got to take her 70 miles on foot at the best with a donkey. And she's big as a house. I mean, it's time. And all the struggle and confusion, seemingly wrong situations that we encounter in life, our God reigns as sovereign. And His plans are good and they will not fail. I can't help but think maybe Joseph and Mary initially thought, great. God's told us the Messiah is going, we're, we're, like, we're having the Messiah. And now Caesar wants us to go all the way to Bethlehem. You ever feel that way about your, about your life? What an encouragement to know God is ruling and reigning over everything. Even when we don't see it, even when it's, it's, it doesn't make sense, even when it's hard and painful. The Bethlehem manger shows the absolute sovereignty 
of our Savior God. God revealed the glory of His grace by having His Son lay in a Bethlehem feeding trough. Lastly this morning, notice with me, the lowly manger was the first step of the way of Jesus. Philippians 2, verse 8. We read a moment ago, Philippians 2, verse 7, that he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8 says, and being found human in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Step one was a step out of heaven into earth, onto, onto the earth in the form of Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ child born and laid in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. But you see the Bethlehem manger, the lowly manger, was just the first step in the way of Jesus. Being found in human form, the baby in a trough, who grew to be a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to who? To God. Obedient to the law of God. In his life, perfectly fulfilling all righteousness for you, for me. But even by becoming obedient to the point of death, the Father said, you must be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus said, yes, Father, I will be. I want to be. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I give up my life. I lay my life down for you. But he wasn't just obedient to the point of death. He was even obedient to the point of death, the worst of deaths, death on a cross. And so Jesus would live among his people, eating and working, walking and sleeping. He would fulfill all of the righteousness of the law of God on our behalf. Then ultimately, he would lay down his life through the most awful of deaths, a criminal's death, by Roman crucifixion. And hear me, that is why he stepped out of heaven's glory to be born to lay in a manger so that he might die on the cross for us. And now, as our Savior, as the baby who grew to be the man who fulfilled the law and then went to the cross to bear the, the punishment for all of our offenses and law-breaking before a holy God, now, as our Savior, His way of life is our example. Amen? Even as we read earlier in Philippians 2, verse 5, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying you need to think and live just like Jesus thought and lived. And when he was God the Son in eternity sitting at the, at, at the right hand of the Father, you need to think like he thought then. And what did he, how did he think? He thought this way. He laid all of his pro heavenly prerogatives aside and said, for love and in humility I will serve humanity that has offended me, that has sinned against me, that's violated my law, that deserves my punishment. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this while we were still sinners. Christ came and died. 
for us. And so Jesus laid it all down. And Paul says, here's the deal, lay it all down. Lay it all down for, for, for him ultimately, but for one another. Live with each other, Paul says, clearly in the context. Have such a unity one for another that you prefer the other person over yourself. That's what Jesus did. That's what Bethlehem's all about. That's what the manger means. It means that that he was willing to put aside what was rightfully due him, all the eternal glory of heaven, to serve you, to serve me. The lowly manger was the first step in the way of Jesus. He took many more all the way to the cross, three days dead, and then he rose again, and today he lives, and he lives to empower you and me to walk the way of the cross to walk in the same steps that he walked, to, to, to live the same way that he lived, to, to put aside our own prerogatives, our rights, our entitlements, those things we think we, we deserve, and serve one another by humbly sacrificing ourselves for each other. And you know what our world needs? Our world desperately needs just that. Our world today desperately needs to experience followers of Jesus serving them with the same sort of self-denying humility and love as Jesus extended to us from his birth all the way through his ascension. Even now, he, he serves us. He's our everlasting advocate at the Father's right hand. So the question is, as we close this morning, will we be like Jesus to our world. First of all, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, the, the Christ of Christmas, you've never trusted him as your personal Lord and Savior, hear the gospel today. It's been preached. It's been declared. God became man. The Son of the living God laid in a Bethlehem feeding trough to serve you so he could show you he comes to the lowest. He comes to the most needy. He doesn't come for a privileged group. By coming into the shepherd's world, he said, I'm here for everybody, from royalty to peasant. If you're here this morning, it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, how you've lived, it doesn't matter. Jesus came for you. The manger proves that God in a feeding trough. He loves you. He humbly served you, and he grew up to be a, a perfect man in your place. He went to the cross, and the Bible says that on the cross, he bore in his own body all of our sins, and he bore the wrath of God, the curse of God against my sin and yours, so that you don't have to bear it ever. And the Bible says that if you simply believe this truth, and take this reality as a gift. You believe God that did that for you in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says if you believe that's true and you call on him, you say, I need that gift, God. I need that salvation. I need the righteousness of Jesus. 
so that my sins can be forgiven and I can stand right and whole before you so that I can have a peaceful relationship with you. The Bible says if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And if you call on the name of the Lord and are saved, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You say, preacher, you don't know what what I've done. I don't care what you've done. God knows everything you've ever thought or done or said. And yet he still sent Jesus to a Bethlehem feeding trough for you. And so today, let me tell you what Christmas is all about. It's about people coming to know Jesus. Amen. If we didn't do anything else and you came to know Jesus, we've had Christmas. Amen. If there wasn't a gift given and somebody came to know Jesus because we talked about him today and about Bethlehem and about a feeding trough, then praise be to God, we're done with Christmas, right? We got her done. It's over. It's good. Today we want you to know him. But then, church, will we, his followers, be like him to our world? Or will we mimic our world, continually vying for position and power and our way and success instead of being servants for Jesus' glory and the good of those around us? Can I, can I just tell you something? Across the nation today, Many who name the name of Christ live like the world. You can't vie for for position and power and at the same time imitate the one who laid in a Bethlehem feeding trough. You can't do it. Which will it be? Are we about position and power as the church in America, as evangelicals in America? Are we about the way of the cross? Are we about the same things the Savior himself was about when he lived here? And as Peter also says, he left an example for us that we should suffer for his sake. Why is suffering unacceptable to the American church? Because we're more American than we are Christian. We're more like the world around us than we are the Savior we claim to follow. And until, listen to me, and until we get that right, the power of the church in America will be about as anemic and weak and dead as it is today. Oh, that we would imitate our Savior. The lowly manger was the first step on the way of Jesus. Will you follow him the rest of the way? Will you lay down your life for others, even your enemies? He did that for me. The God of the universe, the Bible says the one who spoke the worlds into being laid in a feeding trough for me, who was a sinner, his enemy, a sworn enemy on my own, defiant of holy God. And so are you. He laid in a feeding trough to become my Savior. What is it that we're not willing to do? Who is it we're not willing to serve? You know what, you know what, the, the, what the Advent season is all about? Figuring out the answer to those two questions and doing it. Loving them. Showing them Jesus. God revealed the glory of His grace by having His Son lay in a Bethlehem 
feeding trough. The mundane majesty of the manger. Let's pray together.